Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel today. As we continue along, we find ourselves in a new chapter this morning. We'll only consider the first three verses, as the the following discourse is quite lengthy and uh, demands its own sermon. So, Luke chapter 8, the first three verses. Please... Give your attention now, once again, to the reading of God's holy word, Luke chapter 8. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Oh, our holy God, we come once again to the, the preached word, and we pray, Father, that you would work through the preaching of the word, that you would give your minister now. Uh, the Spirit of God, that he would proclaim the words of life to this congregation. And would you give this congregation as well the Spirit of the Lord, that they would receive Christ out of this text. O God, we see such wonderful truths about the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ here. So would you you have your minister proclaim Christ as though he were crucified among us, that we would grab hold of the Savior and we would look to him for all things. O God, we pray this now, that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we can can know a person's heart based on their zeal. You can know their affections, and you can know what they value by what they put their energy into, by their drive and their work and their ambition. Some men often will say with their mouth, they value this thing or the other thing. But where does their energy go? Where does their zeal go? That will prove where their heart truly is. And in matters of religion, this can often be a marker of hypocrisy. I say with my mouth, yes, I I love the Lord and I am zealous for him, but my life shows none of that. And I see that my zeal is all over the place. But as we come to our text, one of the most precious things about our Lord Jesus Christ is this, his zeal to save us, his great zeal to save us. And it demonstrates for us that he never took on a bare obligation to save us. But his whole heart, his whole being was into our salvation. And all of his affections were for the sake of our salvation. Truly, his zeal demonstrates where his heart is. This text here before us shows us Christ's zeal to seek and save what is lost. He goes into highways and hedges, so to speak, seeking his people out of every town and every village. But nothing about our Lord Jesus Christ astonishes us more than to know. And if this was a mere man, you might be astonished. But what astonishes us most of all is that Jesus Christ is God, God man. And he is the son of God, God in the flesh. And so when we behold the the God man entering into every city and every town, it does not show us a mere man's zeal, but it shows us God's zeal. And it shows us God's heart for our salvation. You remember Isaiah 9, 6 quite well, probably. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Yes, you can know a man's heart by his zeal. But in Jesus' zeal, you know the heart of God. So our theme 
this morning is Christ's unrelenting ministry for our salvation. Christ's unrelenting ministry for our salvation. And we'll consider that under the three heads on your bulletin. First is to consider Christ's message. Second is to consider Christ's effort. And third is to consider Christ's support. First, Christ's message. Before we consider his effort, let's first consider what he did. Verse 1, and it came to pass afterward. So this is after our time with uh, the woman who comes to wash his feet with her, her tears. It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. What did he do? He preached and showed the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. What he did in every place that he went is he preached the gospel. He saw preaching as primary in the ministry. You remember this back when our Lord began his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. Several months ago, we remember that. He opened up Isaiah 61, and what did he preach out of it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of our Lord. Why this preaching? Romans 10 says it is because through the word of God preached that God gives us faith to believe and to be saved. We can't forget this because preaching has really fallen on hard times these days. It is quite unpopular. And the enemy has loved to eradicate biblical preaching from out of the church. What is the charge, though, to the ministers of God? Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.2 This is the kind of preaching that must be revived in Reformed churches, friends. This is the kind of preaching that blesses God's people. This is the kind of preaching Christ himself did. Reproving and rebuking sin. Exhorting. Exhortations, right? To flee sin and to flee to Christ for salvation. Pleading with long-suffering. Undergirding all of it with unimpeachable doctrine. Whenever the Lord revives his church, his people long for the preaching of the word. You see, in every great revival, the the doors, there are lines outside the doors of the churches, so to speak, so that men might hear something of the word of God preached to them. Desire preaching for yourself, beloved. Preaching, true biblical preaching, revives the soul. It, It puts to death the flesh, and it gives us the hope of glory. But as our flesh hates true preaching, the enemy deceives us. And what do you find today in so many churches that are uh, things that masquerade as sermons and preaching? You have TED Talks that masquerade as preaching. You have stand-up comedy masquerading as preaching. And in our circles in Reformed churches, often Bible studies that masquerade as preaching. None of that is true preaching because it doesn't fit the definition of 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. But true biblical preaching is the greatest work of the church. Through it, the kingdom grows, the lost are ungathered, and souls are saved to God's glory. You know, unlike Rome, and we can fall into this sort of sacramentalism ourselves, the focal point of the church is not the sacraments. You see that in Christ's ministry here, and the apostles as well. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is what? The power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 17-18. You see this. Why do men not want to preach the cross of Christ? Because to those that are perishing, it is foolishness. And they are afraid of becoming fools in the eyes of the world. And so they will do anything else but preach. But what is that but the enemy's plan? Because unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And that's what Jesus Christ did here. He preached the gospel, the good news. It is the power of God to deliver us from the power of darkness 
and translate us into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians 1 verse 13. The preaching of the word has the power in it by the spirit to break chains and bondage to sin and Satan. To deliver us and make us, as he preached the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, right? To make us citizens of the kingdom of God. And so for your own soul's sake, you must regularly be under the faithful preaching of the word. You and your whole house, your whole family. So Christ went to preach. But would you consider as well what our text says of the glorious message he preached? The glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Glad tidings. Good news. The Greek word for glad tidings And pretty much every translation translates it something like glad tidings, but what's underneath it is a word that means to convey the gospel, to convey the good news. Children, there's one thing I could exhort you, boys and girls, is to never, ever forget what the word gospel means. It means good news because let's just say, sad to say, so many of us adults forget it. We forget that our faith is one of good news. Good news for sinners, as a God has come to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. We're quick to forget that, but our religion is a religion of good news. We have the best news, a gospel of peace and hope for every sinner. This message of the gospel is summarized for you in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Um, 2, rather. one. I'll read from 1 to 4 but summarized particularly in this text. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. See that preaching again, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. What's the message? You and I are sinners. You and I are sinners. You are a sinner, I am too. We are all liable to hell and the wrath of God. Our sin makes us liable to the wrath of 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and listen to this, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's what we deserve. But the glad tidings, the good news of 1 Corinthians 15 is shown in texts like Isaiah 53, because he said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, right? Where do we go? Places like Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many. This is the good news, friends. This is the good news, that Jesus Christ has died for sinners, even the chief. That Jesus Christ has suffered the wrath of, uh, for sinners. That he has become a propitiation for those who would have faith in him. To turn what uh, that word propitiation means, it's throughout the Bible, like in Romans 3.25, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission or forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What that means is he has turned the wrath of God, not just he has not just wiped it away, but he has turned it to favor. So that those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all through his work, God no longer has any wrath for you, but he also, on top of that, now is favorable towards you. This is glad tidings of great joy, friends. This is the good news, that he died for the sins of his people. And I suppose that in itself shows the heart of God for our salvation as well. And you know, as 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, death could not hold him. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. His resurrection assures you of your forgiveness, child of God. Otherwise, you might think, was he just some poor, deluded soul who said that he was the Savior of the world? But no, because he was raised from the dead, we say as the centurion who trembled when God shook the earth, truly this man was the Son of God. And so that message of forgiveness of sins through his life is what he goes into every town and village to preach. 
What did he say himself? For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and listen to the verbs, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Did you hear the word give? Did you hear the word give? He preached a gospel of giving and of what? His life. His perfect life as the God-man. Christ gave himself for sinners who believe. He gave himself. He offered himself, his own righteous self to God. For what purpose? To be a ransom. To purchase your soul and body, child of God. For who? Did he come to do this for the righteous? No, there is none. He did this. He gave himself. He purchased vile sinners who deserve the everlasting wrath of God. Is that not the wonder, right, when Paul speaks of his life, right, and how he lives his life? Is that not the wonder that Paul has for his life? I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? This is the good news, friends. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and not just to save them, but to give himself for them. Can you say that for yourself? Can you take up Galatians 2.20 for yourself? That the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Do not think of anybody else right now. Do not think that person needs Christ. What of you? How can you know that the Son of God has loved you and gave himself for you? Well, before... Paul said Jesus gave himself for him. He wrote, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 2 verse 16. That is how you can know. Is your faith in the Lord Jesus If so, you can say, and what a glorious thing it is, I know that the Son of God has loved me and given himself for me. And if you do have faith in him, he says to you, as he said to the sinful woman at the end of the last chapter, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Are these not glad tidings of great joy? Come from the heavens down to sinful man. There is no news like this, friends. No matter what you see on the news tomorrow or today or whenever, there is no news like this. This is the best news. And because it is the preaching of news, we observe that our faith is a declaratory faith. We declare by preaching, right, that the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. We declare what Christ has done. That is what we do in the Christian religion. And not only is ours a declarative faith, ours is a receptive faith. We receive the good news, we believe in it, and we are saved through it. That is why, and this is again why the enemy wants to remove preaching. This is why preaching is necessary. Because our faith is declaratory and receptive. Faith does not come by a dialogue and negotiation with God. God plainly declares the terms, and we receive Christ by faith. Our faith in Christ, as we hear preaching, is Christ saying, Stop talking. Listen to me. Believe me. And receive me. No ifs, ands, or buts. What does he say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. This is how he went preaching. What a sermon that is. Could you imagine the God-man preaching that? Incredible. Cast all your soul's burdens on Jesus. That's the good news, isn't it? He says he can bear it because you cannot. And so what we want to understand here, even as he went preaching, is that the glory of the gospel, and this is where we go terribly wrong so much in in, in our, our thinking, right? Even in good evangelical or reformed churches, the glory of the gospel is that it is not found in being saved from hell, right? That's just a almost a side thing. The glory of the gospel is found in a person, right? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the good news. He is the good news, believer. The gospel is not simply that you have salvation. The gospel at its core is that you have Christ. And every blessing to you comes from God. When our Lord was born, what did the angels proclaim? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The same message, right? Good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 10 through 11. What are the good tidings of great joy? Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior, is born. Now, this is how we might think of things even in the Reformed churches. The angel does not say, I bring glad tidings of justification by faith. I do not bring glad tidings of adoption, sanctification, and glory to come. He says, I bring glad tidings of great joy that in the city of David is born a Savior, which is Christ our Lord. The angel doesn't have to say, I bring justification to you in Christ. Because all of that flows out of the person of Jesus Christ. You have Christ, you have everything. Well, I would also be remiss as we think of the preaching of the good news that if I did not declare that the glad tidings of the kingdom requires not just a reception of Christ by faith, but also a repentance from our sin. With the gift of faith also comes the gift of repentance unto life. You can look at that in Acts 11, verse 18. And Jesus preached this message of repentance. What did he preach when he talked about the kingdom of God? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 17. And so if you are in the kingdom, if you have received Christ by faith, right, you are to disavow your sin. That's what repentance is about. You are to walk away from your sin as Levi walked away from his toll booth to follow Jesus Christ. Ask yourself what the Bible asks. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Romans 6 verse 2. Connect that to your Savior as well. It was your sin that caused your Savior to die. How can you fool around with it anymore? It was your sin and my sin that put him on the cross, believer. How could we ever decide we're going to play around with sin? If you are in the kingdom of heaven, you are called to live as a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20, for our conversation that is citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did the Lord Jesus give you a full and free salvation so that you can indulge yourself in sin, believer? Was that why he died? Is that why your Lord went to the cross? So he could be a minister of sin? God forbid, is what the Bible says. And if you knew, right, if you knew the ugliness, if you knew like that woman, right, in the last chapter, if you knew the ugliness, the deceitfulness, and the wickedness of sin, you would find that the gift of repentance is actually one of the glad tidings of the kingdom of heaven. You would find that power from the Holy Spirit to cause you to be a slave of righteousness is actually a glorious aspect of the good news. It would be to you if you knew the ugliness of sin. Think of that sinful woman again. Like I said, she was freed from her bondage to sin, something she could never be freed of until Christ came and liberated her from it. Being freed from the power of sin is actually something to adore about the gospel and not to shy away from. And so live for righteousness, hate sin, and pursue Christ with a great zeal. You say your heart is for Christ. Show it by living for him and asking for the grace to live it. Live for the one, as Paul did, who loved you and gave himself for you, believer. And as we consider next our second head, Christ's effort, May his effort spur you on in that. Verse 1 says of Jesus that he went throughout every city and village. Here we find that our Lord is unrelenting, isn't he? He goes throughout every village and every city in Galilee to preach the glad tidings that we have just considered. We find in our text 
how zealous the Lord was, that he was truthful, right, when he said this. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 10. In the Gospel, then, we find not only is its message declaratory through preaching, but through preaching, it is the God of the Gospel who is seeking us out. He seeks out his sheep. Sinners do not seek out God, but instead God in Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit seeks out sinners. Think of the effort that the Lord exerts here. What did he do? Did he just set up a shop someplace in Galilee and hang a shingle? No. He sought the lost. He went where the lost are. He preached wherever they they are. It took great effort. It took great pain. He left no stone unturned, so to speak. That is how committed the Lord is to seeking the lost. Remember in Luke 15, verse 4, when the Pharisees turned up their noses that Jesus Christ received sinners, what did he say? What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost? I love this phrase. Until he find it. Until he find it. I can look back on my life and see that the Lord did not relent until he found me. I think many of you who are converted have a sense of this in your conversion. That though you were gone clean astray, wandered far from God in the wilderness of sin, wanting nothing to do with God or his righteousness, Jesus Christ through various means, but by his spirit did not relent He did not stop, not until he found you. If you are here today and you don't know the Lord, maybe the Lord has pursued you for a very long while and maybe this is the day he is determined to catch you. Will you stop struggling and resisting? Will you go to him and find rest in him? And as we consider him in Luke 15 as that good shepherd who searches out for even the one lost lamb, You have to understand, beloved, that this good shepherd doesn't hogtie us and he's not cruel to us, twisting our arms. Instead, Isaiah 40 says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. He carries his people close to his heart. He said, I will give you rest. Find rest for your soul and stop striving against the Lord Jesus. But as a point of doctrine, I think you find in our Lord the great dismantling of the hyper-Calvinist error. That doctrine that says, if not the sentiment, right? Sometimes men won't say this, but they'll have the sentiment. Now, obviously, we're Calvinists, and we believe God is sovereign. But there are those of the hyper-Calvinist strain who say that because God will save the elect, and he will, we know this, That's not their error, to say that God will save the elect. Their error is in saying that because God will save the elect, we don't have to exert our energy to do it. That we do not have to preach the gospel promiscuously to every creature under heaven. That we do not have to go into every highway and hedge. (laughs) But believer, if any preacher could have just stayed in one place and drawn the elect out of their hiding holes, instantaneously it was Jesus Christ, Son of God. But instead, what do you find? He goes everywhere. He goes into every nook and cranny. And he preaches the gospel to every creature. In this we find that the advancement of the kingdom of God, the advancement of the gospel, requires great effort and energy, friends. The Holy Ghost uses the means of human effort, human sweat, and human tears, and pleading. Yes, the power and strength come by the Spirit, but we are called to exercise these means. Today, right, our Lord has ascended into heaven. His earthly ministry in body has ceased. But seated at God's right hand, he is still seeking and saving the lost through his church. He has poured out his spirit upon us in Acts 1 verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is the ongoing commission, isn't it? Not just to every city and village in Galilee, 
but to every city and village in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, even Fairview. Those are our marching orders as the church, and he has given us the Holy Spirit power from on high to do it, to preach the same good news that he preached, but everywhere on the earth. You may have seen our session meeting synopsis. It's for reasons like this that we have decided to double our open-air preaching events starting in the month of October to do what Jesus did, to bring the preached word to those who are outside of this building, that they may hear the words of life. What do we know of the Bible? It says, For he that abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. 1 John 2, verse 6. Now, I have to say this, for our time and age, not all of us will preach, right? That's reserved for the ministers. But in our text, you see that here, right? Many followed Jesus, but only he preached. The disciples were with him, but they did not preach yet. They will another day. The women obviously could not preach, because preaching is for ministers of the gospel, and ladies are prohibited from being ministers. But even though you may not preach, right? When we go out and do public witnessing, you can certainly speak of Jesus. You can tell of others of what great things the Lord has done. You can hand out gospel tracts. You can pray with those that you meet. You can even dialogue and converse about the things of God. You can put in the hands of many a copy of the Holy Scriptures. That's one of my favorite things that I've seen you all do, is to give a copy of the words of life to those who do not have it. But we can also be, right, as our support of the Great Commission, be eager to support missions and missionaries, foreign and domestic, through their labors. It is through their labors that the lost are gathered of every nation, tongue, and tribe. You know, one of the things that we need to take heed of here as we see our Lord's ministry is that the Lord has said this to us, and we are so guilty so often in our society. The Lord has said, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Amos 6.1. And that ease takes many forms. Ease with our current estate, ease with our sin, but also ease in knowing this, that many are perishing and we are without a care for them. There's a certain kind of hardness of heart where I'm not saying that every moment of your day has to be consumed with the thought of the lost perishing, but when was the last time you had a care that the lost were going to hell? There's a certain hardness of heart in the man, woman, or child who doesn't care and is at ease with their own state, knowing that so many are perishing. Well, the Lord's effort, the Lord's effort here in our text should cheer your soul, beloved. It really should. He shows you, if you are a believer, that he is truly zealous for you. You know, it's a simple text, isn't it? But there's so much here. Can you treasure it as you see him hunting out the elect? that his heart is truly in your salvation, that he even exerts, though he could have used many means, he exerts his own blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, to hunt you out. You find here that his zeal is for you, the bride of Christ, that he will not relent until all the elect are gathered together. And if you see his zeal is here to preach the word, do you think that having come to salvation in him, that he will let you go, that his zeal will cool? He cannot change. Right? This is the nature of God. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you think having zeal to save you, that he has lost the zeal to keep you and sustain you? By no means. You are saved by the power of Christ, and you are kept by the power of Christ. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He prayed. He said, I gave unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Your Savior has the power of God. He and the Father are one. And what does he say he exercises that power towards? Is keeping you in his hand. He will cause you to persevere. Because the one who was nailed to the cross is God. And he will keep you even as he has saved you from your sin. 
Well, for his work, he had support. So let's consider that lastly, Christ's support. The latter half of verse 1 says, And the twelve were with him. These are the twelve men who would be his apostles, as we saw in Luke chapter 6, as he chose them out. Why were they with him? Right? Why, why is this? This is boys and girls. You might remember this. In the old days, this was more prevalent. You had sort of the apprenticeship model. Right? You would be with a man, and you would learn your trade from the man. And so being with Jesus, they learned how to do the work of the ministry from the master. It becomes clear throughout the scriptures. You know, they learned from him how to preach the content and substance of preaching. But you have to believe that they also learned the great effort required in the ministry as well. They must have seen it as a labor of spending and being spent, as the Apostle Paul would say later on. They saw that the Lord spent himself for the sake of ingathering the sheep. And you see that in their own life, if you think of their biographies, right? After the Lord ascends, their entire life is spent for God. And they would die spending themselves for the Lord. Where did they learn that? They learned it by being with the Lord himself. But you have to ask here, you see the answer in our text. How was our Lord enabled to do the ministry? You know, he had no great funding source, right? He didn't come into this world uh, as a rich man, right? He came to the earth to a poor family. That was part of his humiliation, as we confess. He had no worldly goods. What did he say? And you think of this then, the, the great effort and the great zeal he must have had because this was even more difficult. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Luke nine fifty eight. And as I prayed earlier, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You hear the zeal of the Lord for you in that too. For your sake he becomes poor, that you might become rich. But what enabled, physically speaking, Jesus to have this unrelenting and focused ministry. Where did he think, where do you think of uh, his sustenance and his clothing to sustain his ministry? Well, it's a remarkable source. In addition to the twelve, you find in verses two and three, women who supported him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. You have Mary Magdalene, you have Joanna, Susanna, and many others here following Christ in his ministry. Christ delivered these women from their many infirmities, from demonic powers, their sin, their uncleanness. And these are women. I love how Luke is so masterful in the way. I've just grown to appreciate how he weaves the gospel here together. Right? We had just seen a woman who loved much because she was forgiven much. And here you have the same strain now being woven here of these other women who loved the Lord Jesus Christ so much because of all that he has delivered them from. Mary Magdalene, seven devils cast out of her. A woman who had been under the oppression of evil spirits and uncleanness her, her whole life like a demoniac, but had been by a word of Christ's power freed like all the other demoniacs. And we have Joanna, who was married to Cusa, likely Herod's chief steward. Many believe at this point she was a widow at this time that freed her to travel with the Lord. And then we have Susanna. Not much is known about her, but there are others here beside And how do they show their love for the Lord? The text says they support the Lord in his preaching of the gospel. What they have received, they want others to have. And when they see a need, just like that woman did last time at the end of chapter 7, when they they saw a need that the Lord had that was not being taken care of, they give what Jesus needs so that he can do the work of the ministry. And if the Son of God has set you free, how this should be your disposition as well believer. You know, if you look at the synoptics, Luke is the only one that notes the ministry of these women towards Jesus. And that seems to be a common strain with Luke's gospel. He has a special place in his gospel for these women. It seems like Jesus, of course, not seems like, obviously, Jesus himself 
had a special place in his ministry towards women. You know, that Christ has elevated women to a great place shows us how the Christian religion honors women. The Lord Jesus Christ truly honors women. Women are precious to Jesus, and Jesus is so precious to women who are saved. Throughout the Bible, women are often shown to be more spiritually sensitive and tender than men. It's a truth that cannot be denied. On the resurrection day, who was the first at the empty tomb? You think Mary Magdalene is there in John chapter 20, isn't she? Here she is here, and you'll see her again at the end of the gospel. Mary, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, were the first witnesses that Christ was raised from the dead. And what did the apostles say when they came to give them that news? And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Luke 24.11. We'll get to there, at this rate, I think, in another five or six years. But that, all that to say, Jesus Christ elevates women, and they are precious to him. And you must know that, women. The Lord truly has elevated women. Of all the religions on the earth, only the Christian faith truly values women. But in their, his elevation of women, you have to be very careful in our society. He does not elevate them by turning them into men. But his grace elevates them to make them women. If the saying is true that grace perfects or restores nature, then the nature of woman is perceived by their, uh, then what woman ought to be is perceived by their nature. And what grace does is it perfects nature. You think of the anatomy of woman. Women have a womb by which to care for a child in its tenderest days. They have breasts by which to nurse them. Women are given a sensitive and nurturing nature. They often, because their, their life is in so many ways lived so much more so than men for the sake of others, even from having a child conceived inside of them, to nursing a child, to often being with the child every single day, women are given by God a sensitive and nurturing nature. They readily perceive what others need. But in sin, you see this, a, a lot of that is lost and jumbled up. But when the grace of God appears, grace takes a corrupted nature and perfects it. Just as you see in these women who minister what Christ needed. Why is the Bible so clear about these women are there to, to sustain the ministry? They, they see probably even what the men might not perceive immediately. That Christ needs this help. And you see that the Lord, and this is for us who need grace, the Lord is not too proud himself to take their help, is he? We have to be aware of that ourselves. But you see here that Christ uh, takes what they give, and they are aware of what he needs. And you'll notice here that the Bible, right, even though it elevates these women, it doesn't blur the distinction between the 12 men and these women. These 12 men will become preachers of the gospel. They will become heralds of the gospel. Grace will perfect their nature as men. They will speak boldly. They will thunder the words of life. They will exert the sweat of their brow, and they will stare down fierce hatred and opposition. But for these women, grace perfects their nature in another way and gives them a very, very tender and feeling disposition. The sin of feminism has encouraged warped values in women in the church, saying if a woman cannot preach, then she is somehow less than a man. No, not at all. There is so much that is commendable to what is proper in the female sex, and we are losing it, friends. We are losing their graces and gifts because feminism wants to turn women into men. But Jesus finds what is commendable in these women and men what is proper to their sex. He despises a woman who pretends she is a preacher. First Timothy 2, 11 through 12 says that. But he adores a woman with sympathetic affections, quiet and submissive. That is, that word submissive is very unpopular, I recognize, to say in the 21st century. But this is what the Bible teaches. First Peter 3, speaking to the wives, 
Let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. A meek and quiet spirit, ladies. What does the text say God sees that as? Great price. See, what God values, all of us have to know this, but for you ladies, especially as I'm preaching now, what God values is very different from what the world values. Very different. And so women, you have to ask, is, is, is your spirit pleasing to God or is it pleasing to the, the, this world and its present age? Please God. Women, I would just say this. You know, there's a wrong way and the society takes it the wrong way. Women, be proud not in a haughty way. Be proud to be women. Be glad you are women. Do not desire to be men. The Lord loves women as he made them to be. Women. And grace has come to restore your nature. Embrace a true biblical femininity, especially a gentle, giving, and submissive spirit. That is the power, actually, of the Christian woman. In his book, Female Piety, John Engel James wrote that her influence, speaking of women, however, is a kind of passive power. It is the power that draws rather than drives and commands by obeying. Her gentleness makes her strong. How winning are her smiles, how melting her tears, how insinuating her words. Woman loses her power when she parts from her gentleness. He then says, and this is profound, she vanquishes by submission. Yes, women are the weaker vessel but her strength is in embracing her God-given nature. And the reason a lot of women have no spiritual power today is they do not embrace who God made them to be by nature. But if men and women both would ask for grace to perfect their nature, how their souls would revive and the kingdom would expand, as it did in our text. Now, I hope to speak on these things. I just introduced those things for you a bit more on in our upcoming Christian family series. And so I'll, I'll speak more on male and female roles as well as children. Well, you see throughout here, and we'll, we'll close with a couple more thoughts. The work of the gospel requires means, right? All throughout this text are means. God delights to use them. He used the resources given by these women. Though by a word of his power, Christ could have filled his money box as he filled a fish's mouth with coin. Right? So we know that the Lord delights to use these means. He used very human exertion in preaching. Though with the word of his power, he could have brought in all the elect out of Galilee. God delights to use means. God delights to use exertion. So we give to the work of the church to fund the ministry of the gospel, as these women did. We labor tirelessly in evangelism to ingather the elect. And we pray, right? So many people ask, why pray? Well, you might ask, why did Christ preach? We pray fervently because this is a means the Lord has ordained. We pray fervently to ask the Lord for what he has promised us. You have to exert grace uh, to mortify your sin. It's not enough to just pray to God. And I, I know that can sound maybe a, a bit blasphemous, but it isn't enough. The Bible shows us we use the Holy Spirit's help to mortify our sin, but we must exert ourselves. We are called to be diligent, to maintain good works, and all by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15.10, a beautiful text as we think of a man who spent himself, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The grace of God and the labor of Paul together are working. The source is the grace of God, but he exerts himself, expending the grace of God. Well, if I may riff on Paul, Jesus here labored more abundantly than any for the heirs of salvation. You see that here. Beloved of God, I hope today you have seen how zealous the Lord is for your salvation. Respond out of love as these dear women did, and serve him with gladness. He exerted a great effort to seek you and find you and save you. And so, as we meditated on as we began, you know where his heart is. Because he didn't just say with his mouth, 
that he loves his bride, but he, he exerts himself to the very end to save her. His entering into every city to seek out the lost is, and this is where we, we conclude with this thought, even this, right, and we're cheered by it, it is only a mere token of his zeal to save you. Nothing preaches the zeal of the Lord to save his people than his cross. Nothing. Upon which he exerted every fiber of his being to the uttermost to save you out of love, where he gave his soul as an offering for sin when the power of God's wrath smote him and his body was eviscerated by lashings, its strength sapped away as he hung there, but worst of all, when he offered his soul for our sin, you see the zeal of the Lord to save you. See in the cross his zeal and love for you, believer. This is why the apostle said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and how does he continue? By whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That is the use of understanding what the Lord has done in his cross. Amen. Let us leave Luke there for now. Please rise for prayer, if able. Oh, our holy God, We thank you for your word in just a few precious verses, how it says so much. We thank you, Father, for the zeal of the Lord to accomplish our salvation. Help us, Father, be those like these women who love him much for having been forgiven much. Oh, Lord, help us to exert ourselves for the sake of the kingdom of God. Help us to live for righteousness and not for sin. Help us, O God, to uh, support the work of evangelism and the ministry and missions. Help us, Lord, to be people who are not at ease in Zion, but are pressed to our knees, praying and pleading for you to save the lost, but then also getting up off our knees if we are able and to speak a good word to those in need. O Father, we pray that you would cause your people to be revived, to seek out true biblical preaching. And if any here have never known the way of salvation before. May this be the day when our Lord Jesus Christ has caught up to them and has snatched them up in his bosom. We pray that you would give faith to those who do not have it. And we ask this all ultimately for the glory of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.